in chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, and we'll be reading all of chapter 5. Okay, church, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Church, this is God's Word. Isaiah 5, beginning in verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that the rain, that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, the men and the men of Judah, and his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hear hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seeds shall yield but an ephod. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honor men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Men is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs gaze as is, as in the pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity and cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. 
Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as a tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so the root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all of his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a single for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows are bent. Their horses' hoofs seem like flint, and their wills like the rolled wind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off. None can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress. And the light is darkened by its cloud. Church, that is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for being a God who has not left us on our own, for being a God who is holy and righteous and just, and a God who is merciful and gracious. Father, be with us as we study your word this morning. I ask that you would encourage our hearts where we need encouragement, Lord. Where we are dry, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit. And where we need to be convicted and where we need to see our sin and repent, Father, grant us that gift this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So that was a very long chapter. <laughs> Thank you, Rick, for reading it. Uh, but I wanted to make sure that we saw the entire context of Isaiah 5 because we, ooh, excuse me, we will not be touching on every verse this morning because we do not have time for that. Um, but we will touch on the themes. And the theme this morning is God's perfect justice. And we love justice somewhat. 
we specifically love a comeback story, right? When someone has been mistreated, abused, or held back, we love watching the protagonist rise from the doldrums of despair and enact justice on their perpetrator. Recently, we watched The Princess Bride with Resolved, which real quick, Resolved tonight, I've missed you guys being on vacation or not, so we'd love to have you at our house. But anyways, we watched The Princess Bride uh, about a month ago, and in that movie, Indigo Montoya is hunting down this man with six finger, fingers, right? He stole a sword from his father and then killed him and then cut Indigo's face up. And when you watch that movie and Indigo finds him, you just lean in and you want to say along, my name is Indigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And then you're, you're just there on the edge of your seat. And then again and again and again and again until finally justice and as enacted Indigo and his family are vindicated and you as the watcher, the viewer is just, ah, yes. He got what was coming at him. We love that. We love that in movies. But if I say God's justice, uh, I don't know. Makes us a little uncomfortable. When we think of, the, we love the idea of God's love. And Jen Wilkin, with Jen Wilkin in her book, In His Image, points this out within the context of evangelism. She says, in our conversations with unbelievers, we rarely rush to introduce God's justice, the justice of God. The typical evangelistic formulas begin with an emphasis on God's love for this very reason. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Seems a lot more promising than God punishes the lawless and his justice, right? God's justice makes us uneasy also because we don't understand it. And there's a natural part of us that fears it. We don't understand it because so much injustice goes on around us, does it not? Many of you in here have suffered significant injustice. And you're asking, where is God in that? Or you look at the world around you and you say, where is God? Just some quick, bleak, dark examples. Recently, the DOG, DOJ, Department of Justice, produced a study that said 60% of American sex slave workers come from foster care. If not, the orphaned was enough if not sex slavery was enough, it gets darker. See children murdered in the womb? Immigrants fleeing persecution, washing to shore after drowning with their children. Across the world, there are the hungry, the war-torn countries, and I could go on and on. Where is God in all this? In Isaiah 5, God is going to be exalted in his justice. He is exalted in his justice. And God tells us that his justice is coming. It is because of our sin that it is coming. In chapter 5, God accuses Israel of wasting the blessings that he has given them by not producing fruit. And rather than producing fruit of justice, love, and mercy, they have become self-absorbed. God Call, has called us to take how we, he has blessed us and to bear good fruit. The big idea, the prop statement, whatever you want to call it for the sermon, is in the same way that God traded his life for justice, we are called to trade our lives for justice. And we're going to see that God's grace is wasted 
And then God's heart broken with six woes. And then finally, that God's justice is served or shown. God's grace wasted. Isaiah opens this chapter with a song to his listeners. It's a love song. It's a ballad. He wants to grab his reader's attention. He's not some random babbling prophet who's just going on and on that the world's going to end. No, he's telling a very specific story with very specific illustrations. First, though, he refers to God as his beloved. And this is important. This is important. And it's such a personable term. Isaiah does not use this term because he has some sort of trite view of God. No. Isaiah has a rich view of God's holiness, majesty, and justice, all the while simultaneously understanding that his God and our God has decided to be known by the lowly. This beloved that Isaiah speaks of has given so much to his love, to his vineyard. Let's take a look. Just blasting through those first two verses, there's a vineyard on a fertile hill. God had given his people, Israel, the choices of land. When the Israelites exited Egypt and were going to the promised land, they were traveling to what was called a land filled with milk and honey, signifying prosperity and wealth. He cleared it of stones and chose the best vine, the choicest vine. He set them up for success as a special people. He built a watchtower for their protection, perhaps the law. They had everything they needed to live a godly life, gave them a king, the line of David, conquered the Canaanites. But the purpose of this song is not the symbolism specifically, but more what the symbolism means. Excuse me. The purpose is to show that the beloved did the back-breaking work and expectation of receiving a good crop of grapes. God was expecting a harvest. But what did he get in the end? Wild grapes. What happened? What went wrong? When his audience originally heard this and the song started, they would have been expecting Isaiah to end with, and the vine produced a rich, glorious harvest. And so when the hearers heard this, they'd be like, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? Sour grapes? Look at us. But as Tim mentioned previously, in the words of Charles Dickens, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Judah currently was at the pinnacle of ancient Near East society. They had a king on the throne at this point for 50 years. That is unprecedented. Second Chronicles 26 tells us that King Uzziah's reign was long and prosperous. And looking at the surroundings, the Israelites would have assumed that they had in fact produced that rich harvest. But the wealth and the harvest that the Israelites had procured went to their bellies rather than to the benefit of others. In this song, God is putting himself on trial. He's reminding his people of their story, how he called them by their father Abraham, delivered them from Egypt, gave them a king to protect them, who conquered the Canaanites, and he gave them the law and the way to live. And now he's asking, why are you not bearing good fruit? Is it my fault? What else was I supposed to do? The detail that Isaiah is going through for our own modern minds would draw this conclusion. I live in a 21st century house with 21st century plumbing. I've gotten water out of my faucet a 
million times. And when I went to my faucet today, sewage came out. What? Why were they not fruitful? To flip this on us, why are we not fruitful? If you're a Christian in here this morning, I'm right here with you guys. Let's keep this, everything I'm about to say. This has been a tough preparation week for me. There's not this typical like, though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow verse in here. This is a lot holding up the mirror and saying, woe is me. If you're a Christian in here this morning, what excuses do we give ourselves? Or give God for our lack of fruit in our life? God, I'm too tired. If I had more time, then I would serve your people. If I had a better husband or a better wife, then I would serve them. You don't understand who I have. If my kids weren't so crazy and loud and rude and obnoxious, then I would serve them better. If I didn't have to work so much or for that boss or at this company, I wouldn't be forced to eat or drink so much. If the political climate was calmer, then I would share the gospel. The list goes on and on and on. We've all done it. I've done it. We are really good at excuses. It's been happening since Adam and Eve, right? It's like, <laughs> it's like a cornerstone of humanity. The woman made me do it. You trace through scripture. We did this recently in, in our Sunday school class, right? Our the equip class. At every fall of humanity, you just see mankind deflect. Someone else's fault. Someone else's fault. Some situation's fault. But ask ourselves the question, what has God done for us? Ephesians 1, 3 through 5 tells, it, tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Our Father has adopted us as children. Isn't that amazing? But he doesn't stop there. Using the same imagery, just looking at some other passages of scripture, using the same imagery in Isaiah 5, John 15, saying this, I am the true vine, and my father is the keeper of the vineyard. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes to make it even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. Just as no branch can bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. In Isaiah, Israel is called the choice vine. In John 15, the better Israel, the one who kept the law perfectly, the one who did not sin, the one who you as a believer are tied to, who are in is called the true vine. For the believer in Christ, it is not an option of bearing fruit. You will bear fruit. Do you hear that? 
If you're in here this morning, you're saying, God, where, where's the fruit in my life? It doesn't have to be some sort of grand, amazing gesture where you're starting some sort of undying ministry that is in some country somewhere. That can't happen, and that can be great. But fruit is born, as was mentioned in the Paul David Tripp video a second ago, in the little moments of your life. And what you say to a cash register at Publix or Walmart, and what you say to your children, and the way you behave when you are ridiculed at work for whatever reason. Israel did not produce fruit because they did not know God as their father. God has connected us to him through the person of Jesus Christ. So what will God do? What is God's response to this? In verse five through seven, he explains that he will remove the protection and they will be made a waste. All of the benefits that were previously given to Israel to be a prosperous nation will be taken away. And why is that? Look at verse seven. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Israel was set apart to be a blessing for the nations. It's been said that in the same way that we, had the great, we have the great commission from Christ to go to the nations preaching the gospel, to make disciples, Israel had what could be called an internal commission. They were to show the world, come see God where we say, go, we go and say, God, Israel was a beacon on a hill saying, come see God. And Israel didn't do that. Micah 6.8 tells us this. He sums it up well. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? It is right and good for God to judge the Israelites this way. And we'll see in a minute, God will be glorified in his justice. And the sin not only brings his judgment on Israel, but it also brings sorrow from God's heart. See, Isaiah's rebuke here, God's heart, we see that God's heart is broken. This rebuke is a lament and in a lament, it's full of compassion and love for Israel. I don't know what runs through your mind when you hear the word woe. My view, honestly, was incorrect. I thought it more of like this street corner preacher saying, woe is you, like kind of deal. Like that's just not accurate. That's really poor use of the language. It could be translated as, ah. It, it's just an interjection. The purpose of it is to communicate distaste and pain. And I don't think we as a modern church really understand or think about the pain that our sin causes God. See, sin is always personal. There is no such thing as a victimless sin even when it's done in private. All sin at its core is a direct statement to our Father 
that our sin is greater than him. We're not just saying my way is better than your way or your preferences, God. But we're actually saying that this, this sin is better than you. So our attitude towards sin should be, in fact, whoa. It should be sorrowful. And if there are unbelievers in the room speaking to you specifically here, you probably don't, didn't expect to walk into church and hear this morning, to hear this this morning. But if you're an unbeliever, your attitudes towards sin should be dread and despair. But as a believer, as those who put our hope in Christ, which for unbelievers, there's an invitation, please put your hope in Christ. Let me be very clear there. When you see that there is no hope, that you cannot make yourself better, there's an invitation for Christ saying, come, abide in me, be a part of the, new, the true vine. See, for the Christian, rather than dread and despair, you have sadness, but you have hope. You are sad. We are sad that we are not what we ought to be. We are sad that we do not shake sin, but we are hopeful in who Christ is on the cross and who he is making us to be, right? Because when Christ returns for the believer, as the hymn says, one of my favorite lines ever, O Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight and the sky be rolled back as a scroll, right? It's painting this incredible, scary picture, right? But we don't fear. We say it is well with our soul on that day because Christ is our advocate. I'm getting ahead of myself. But he is our advocate. We'll get there to justice. All right. See, we are not enemies of God at this point. We have not lost God's favor. We do not need to now do penance to make up this woe. That was taken care of on the cross. But I want us to ask ourselves right now, today, as believers, because remember, Christ is speaking to his people here. He is not speaking to some sort of pagan worshipers. He's speaking to his chosen people. Do we experience woe when we sin? Or do we just brush it off? Do we think God is a holy, just, righteous God who does not let sin go unpunished? Let me say that again. God will not let sin go unpunished. Or do we think God is just simply some sort of benevolent, fluffy grandfather who has such rose-colored glasses that he can't imagine that his grandchild could do anything wrong when in fact they're stealing out of his wallet every day? We should be woeful, church. So these are the woes that God addresses here in five. We're gonna try to go fast. The first woe is a woe to greed. Isaiah's woe addresses the greed of the tribes and the law. All of the land belonged to God and God gave it to the people to steward. And that land was designed to stay within families and tribes. And those tribes were responsible to care for other families who were poor. In excruciating circumstances, God created parameters for their land to be sold. But the key was in the 15th year, there was supposed to be a flushing a reshuffling of the deck, not really reshuffling because all the lines would be drawn again exactly how they were, but a flushing. Everything would go back to where it belonged. But what was happening here is Judah, a richer tribe, was acquiring land 
And rather than giving it back to those who it was appropriated to, they kept it for themselves, building more and more and more wealth. This is really complicated to preach in 2019 in America because we certainly do not live in a theocratic society, right? And I'll, nor should we. That is not laid out in the New Testament. However, the spirit of this law fully applies to us today. It's clear that God cares about the decency of all mankind. That all mankind is in fact created in his image. And he does not want to see those with wealth oppress the poor. Paul points to Colossians 3, 5, Colossians 3, 5, that covetousness is the heart of all idolatry. And I don't know all of you in here. More specifically, I do not know what you do with your money or your real estate. I don't need to know that. But one thing I do know, just from being around humans, is that every single one of us, we desire things. And more specifically, we desire things that don't belong to us. I have a two, uh, I have a one and a three-year-old. You know when a toy becomes important? When the other one picks it up. It wasn't relevant until then. (laughs) The desire of the people here were treasures of this earth. It wasn't the property itself If it wasn't the property itself, it was at least the power, prestige, and clout that came with their gain. We may not be amassing some sort of ungodly amount of land and holding it over people's heads. This is happening, though. Let's not be naive and say this isn't happening in our world. This is happening. But we might not be doing it. But we are fighting the desires of prestige, wealth, high class, experiences, and so much more. If those become our focus, our desire, our destiny, then we are sinning just like these Israelites these in this chapter are thousands of years ago. See, the kingdom of heaven has been initiated. When The fact that the kingdom of heaven has been initiated, it speaks of a different economy. Luke 9.25 shows Jesus asking this question. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? Our treasure, our gain as believers is not in this earth. Last week and the week before, Tim challenged us saying, none of us have, has the problem of being too heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. I came across this quote, a quote this week in preparation for this from a guy named Owen Strachan. Strachan, Strachan, I don't really know how to say his name, but he says this, we should be so eternity-minded that we are of some earthly good. Church, God has given us so much. We are wealthy people. But where is our treasure? Moving on, and we'll pick up the pace, I promise. Second woe is to indulgence and a lack of thinking. If you're like me, you've probably never thought about the word, what the word amusement means or that it's the opposite of muse. Amuse means to divert the attention, beguile, delude, and as the opposite of muse, which means 
to reflect, ponder, meditate, to be absorbed and dot. As God's people, we are called to be a thinking people. Here in this passage, the Israelites were full of wine and a good time. Here he rebukes the liar and the harp, or the liar and the, yeah, liar and the harp. We see other places that God loves the liar and the harp. He's not rebuking music itself or even drink itself here. He's rebuking the indulgence of it. Similar to a desire for land and power, there's a desire for comfort and entertainment. We should enjoy each other and listen to music. But all those things should evoke awe in us and wonder in our God. Matt Chandler, a pastor in Texas, has often said, we are going to entertain ourselves to death. We have more podcasts, TV shows, movies, websites, Facebook, Instagram, all those things. There's apparently now 5,000 gigabytes per person on this earth of data. That's a lot. It's also six times what there was in 2014. Common Sense Media has said that only 24% in uh, 2015, 24% of 8 to 12-year-olds watched online videos every day. That, now, that number now is at 56%, and it's an average of five hours using screens every day. Not here to rebuke screens. Just trying to show you some trends. When God is speaking to his people, you're not created, we're not created for our entertainment's sake. We're created for a lot more than that. We're not called to be an amused people, but we are called to be a musing people. Like David, the man after God's own heart said time and time again that he meditates and ponders on the things of God. And at Psalm 119, he calls his word honey to his lips. Guys, that's Leviticus. That's Deuteronomy, that's Numbers. This woe really is really a challenge to the modern church's tendency to feel like we need to somehow compete with the world's entertainment by viewing our worship services as concerts and motivational speeches sprinkled in with stand-up comedy. And at Trinity, we want to fight, and I, like speaking for myself here, I want to fight that desire. I'm not saying that desire doesn't exist. I'm saying I want to fight that desire. I don't want to come here to amuse you. I think it's great if we laugh and smile, but I don't want to come here to amuse you when I'm in your seat listening to Tim, Alex, or Rick or singing with the worship team. I don't want to be amused. Our goal is to stir one another's mind and heart to muse on our God. Next, he's a woe to flagrant sin. He gives us this image it says, draw with iniquity the cords of falsehood. He's giving us this picture of someone carrying their sin on a cart through the city, like a horse and a chariot, right? Almost like he's pulling a wheelbarrow backwards and he's carrying his sin like a trophy. And then he says, uh, let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. He's not actually saying, hey, God, come, uh, come look at my sin. He's saying, hey, God, look at my sin and do something about it if you really care. The audacity, right? We'd never do that. They're sarcastic jabs at the Creator. Remember, He's speaking to His people. He's not speaking to pagan worshipers. 
Next, he's a woe to perversion. Humanity has an amazing ability to become con- extremely confused and act extraordinarily out of character, right? Would y'all agree with that? When we get in the heat of negotiations, we can make some really silly decisions. We also can become completely blinded by mass movements. During the Nazi regime of 1933 to 1945, there are stories of churches on Sundays being interrupted and pausing their services because they were disturbed by the screams of the Jews being taken away in trains to concentration camps. They paused not because they were disturbed by their inhumaneness, but because the noise was too loud. These are the people of God. We can become blind very quickly, church. Ray Ortland points out our understanding and goodness can change, saying this, it is possible to lose one's sense of taste, the taste of the heart, not by age or injury, but by choice. If we do not consider sweet to be sweet, but insist that reality can be redesigned to that our taste for bitter can not only be satisfied, but called sweet, how can the grace of God thrive under those conditions? What do we enjoy? I mentioned earlier about David calling the law honey to his lips. Is the Bible dull to us? Have we become so desensitized because we are full of entertainment? I think a really good thing for us to do in our lives, and yeah, if you know me at all, you know I love sitcoms, right? If you don't know me, I love sitcoms. (laughs) But one thing Lisa and I have had to continually do is one, say, am I watching TV just for TV's sake? And then also, what am I watching? What am I laughing at? And guys, that's challenging because we will find things that are not right funny. And we don't want to be a prude, right? But at the same time, the holiness of God is a lot more valuable and rich than a fear of being prudish. We see this redefining of reality in the world for sure. The abortion industry, gender identity issues. And as believers, we may not be supporting either one of those, but we are susceptible to what I would say we call our pet sins. We just kind of think, oh, that's our vice. It's what we do. We're called to so much more, church. Next, woe to self-wisdom, very similar to woe to perversion. Israel looked at their surroundings and thought they were right, and they thought they were good. In those pet sins, we often use our self-inflated wisdom to determine why we sin and justify that. Our tendency is to do some sort of internal audit that gives us the results we want based off of our own internal standards. And then after we get that great score, score, We slap that on the fridge for all to see. Next, and lastly, woe to excess and corruption. We see this in verses 22 through 23. 
See, this passage seems repetitive, and it is because it's a summary of everything that he said over the last 23 verses of Israel's condition. See, I'm just going to read it because it's not too long, and I want to bring it right to our minds. He says, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant man and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. The language used here is language of military heroes and champions. Rather than being champions of defending the poor, they are champions of getting drunk and having a good time. They can be counted on to fill their lives with pleasure, comfort, entertainment, and because of that is the case, they can be counted on to free the guilty and punish the weak all for the right price. Christian, and for a second here, I want to speak specifically to Christian men. We are called to be bold. And we were praying this morning in our prayer meeting, and boldness, about a little bit about this in terms of evangelism, boldness is not a emotion and is not a personality trait, right? If you look at Acts 2, when the disciples start preaching the gospel with boldness, that is counter to what you would have called their characteristics or their personality type, right? But as men, we have a special design given to us by God, a special duty, I would say, to speak up boldly, to lead boldly for those who are hurt, for those who are oppressed. And that's not just for men, though, too. Let me be clear. Finally, and the fun part, God's justice what did I end up putting up there? Shown. Where is God in all of this? These are his people. What are they doing? God's people did not bear fruit, good fruit, and said they oppressed the poor, thought of themselves too highly, had a good time. And in his response, you'll see in verses 24 through 30 and also 14, 13 through 17, he will devour them. He will cast them off. At one point it says they will be like stubble, right? Burned quickly. God, God will show his justice in two ways. He will show his physical justice in exile. And then he will show his spiritual justice. Separating them from his presence. First, God in his justice, his physical justice. You look in verse 15 through 16. Man is humbled and each one is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. And because God is a just God, he will set the scales straight. We know from history that destruction in terms of exile does come. Israel falls to the Syrians and Judah to the Babylonians. Secondly, God will show his spiritual justice 
by opening the mouth of Sheol, as it says, death will come. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Some of us in here may be thinking, why can't God just shrug it off? Isn't the God of judgment and wrath just the God of the Old Testament? We live in the New Testament, the New Covenant, if you're extra theological. If that is your stance, if you're in here saying this, that this morning or thinking that this morning, then you're making a statement that God can in fact change and that he can let wrong go unpunished. And if God can change, then we're only left with fear and uncertainty. So I want to show you that God's justice, though it might be uncomfortable and fearful, it's really good. I wasn't going to say this, but in Chronicles of Narnia, because um, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when the children are the beaver's house, they start talking about Aslan, one of the children asks, is he safe? Mr. Beaver's thrown off like completely, no, he's not safe, but he's good. Our God not safe, but he's good. Our God satisfied his own justice. He didn't just become unjust, but he put another one in his chosen people's place to take their sin and he's take our sin. See, God's justice is necessary and good for the believer because Christ received the just punishment for us. So now, when we stand before the throne of God on judgment day, we are justified, not because we say, hey God, look what I did. Look at what, look at what I didn't do over here. Look at what I did here, what I did, all, all of this. We don't even need to say a word about that. Instead, we say, look at him who hangs on the cross, victorious, who shed his blood for me. Let's look right here at this imagery. This is amazing. In verse 18, it says that they draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, right? Remember, they're walking through the streets carrying their sin boldly. There's another one, though, who carried our sins through the street, right? That image of Jesus Christ on the cross, a symbol of a criminal. Through the streets up to Golgotha, Jesus represented Israel. Jesus represented you. When Sheol, death, right? That's what Sheol means. Death, destruction. When Sheol opened its mouth for sinners to enter, Jesus went to the grave instead. But he did not stay. No, no. He rose victorious. Christ took and absorbed the full punishment for sin. And because our God is a just God, there is literally not one ounce of punishment left for you as a believer. There is nothing left to be paid. Do you get that? 
If God was unjust on a whim, he could change his mind and instead of paying the right payment, he could seek vindication. He could seek reparations, but that is not our God. Romans 3, 21 through 26 says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, remember, all of scripture, all of it, every ounce of it is pointing to the coming of Christ right here. The righteousness of God through faith in the glory of God, excuse me, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is just a fancy way of saying he put God in our place to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Christ's sacrifice showed the justice and the righteousness of God perfectly. The cross is where love and justice meet. Because our God is perfectly just, there is no more payment for sin. The payment that God is calling for, he meets himself. So let's follow this. What does this mean for us now? Right? We, I mean, that, that should get us excited. We should, be, we should be pumped about that. So let's follow this. Christian, if we are with Christ, right? Like we've been saying, then our death to this world came with Christ. This means that the world will not satisfy us. If you are looking for the world to satisfy you, specifically as a believer, you are going to live a awful life. And we don't have to live for this world. In this life, we are learning that this is not our home. It's a song by a musician, John Foreman. It says, all along that I was learning how to bend, not how to break. But in the end, I was just learning how to die. Because the reality is, church, we have something so much better coming when Christ returns. It's like we have a steak dinner waiting for dinner and instead we just fill ourselves with a Happy Meal at McDonald's. Let's not fill ourselves, man. Because we have died to this world, worship team can join me please. We do not need to be worried about our worldly desires being met. But this is easier said than done. See, the Christian demand, expectation, or requirement, whatever you want to call it, to do good, it still stands for us today. But it is not fulfilled by our own ability. It is filled fully by the true vine by the perfect God-man 
where mankind was and is incapable of doing good works on our own, Christ gave himself. Now, if we are in him, then the demand for good works on us becomes our joy and our delight. It's summed up well in a a hymn, again, by William Cowper. He says, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, can turn a slave into a child and duty into choice. Church, it is our joy to do the will of God. As our good father, we follow him. Final, last, last, last little quote, and then I want to pray for us. John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, says it this way. God created me and you to live with a single, all-embracing, all-transforming passion, namely a passion to glorify God by enjoying and displaying his supreme excellence in all spheres of life. That's your home, your work, your school, your hobbies, your vacation, your television, everything, church. The wasted life is a life without a passion for the supremacy of God and all things for the joy of all peoples. Church, we have an incredible opportunity because we have been given something incredible to share joy with this world. We're gonna be entering the the Christmas season and it's not to be a stressful season. It's to be a highlighted season of our anticipated return of our coming King. We know he is coming back and we joyfully anticipate that. And while we wait, we share Christ with everyone. Joyfully. We do not know their response. That's not our job. But our job is to joyfully share Christ in word and action. To share Christ by feeding the poor, feeding the hungry, caring for the orphaned and the widowed, caring for the immigrant, caring for the single mother, caring for this world, church. We should be the first responders of this world. And so right now, I wanna, I wanna in, in, invite two repentances, and th- these are largely based off of what the Lord has been doing to me in my own heart this week and a couple weeks from preparing this. First, if you're in here this morning and you are just, you realize that the best word to describe your Christian life is apathetic, I want to invite you to raise your hand and just a sign of repentance that you do not want to be apathetic towards Christ. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Next. If you're in here this morning, and very similarly to apathy, but you wanted to put it apathy, apath, in that term, you realize that you are just simply distracted. That your mind is not filled on things of God. 
but are filled on just other things, I want to invite you to do the same, to say I'm distracted. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Christ took that. We don't have to be ashamed. It's good for us to be sad and to long for what is coming, right? And listen, and this is the last one here. If you're in here this morning and you're just simply not sure of your faith, and for... um, I want to invite you to raise your hand because the reality is is that God's justice because he is just it was satisfied completely in the person of Christ so if that's you this morning I want to invite you to raise your hand as well but I would also encourage you after the sermon to grab Tim or Rick or myself and let us pray with you specifically because you are if your faith is in Christ then you have hope so let me pray for us here Father God it's easy to say that we have the richness of your blessings in Christ. But the reality is, as you tell us in your word, we are still fighting our flesh. You give us commands to put on our new self. Father, for those who raise their hands in repentance of apathy, Lord, Right now, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray that you would just fill them with your spirit, Father. That they would cling to the throne of Christ. That they would come boldly, as it tells us in Hebrews, the throne of grace and mercy, Lord. That you would stir their affections towards you. That you would wake them up in the middle of the night with thoughts of you. That they would become hungry for your word, Father. That they would as Psalm tells us that they would bless, they would speak to their soul saying, bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that was in me, give him praise. That they would understand they speak to their soul, they stir their affections, Lord. And Father, for those of us who feel distracted, Lord, God, give us the diligence, the self-control, which is the fruit of your spirit, to cut out of our lives what we need to cut out, to build habits, Lord, that turn our hearts and minds towards you, Lord. God, and for us in here who feel afraid that we can somehow out our God, God, that you would just remind us of the truth that we're about to sing now how Christ was displayed on a criminal's cross and we thought that all was lost but that it was sealed when Jesus arose with our freedom in hand by conquering death we do not need to fear because we are in Christ and it's in Jesus name we pray 
Amen. Let's stand, church.